This podcast brought to you by TechSmith. More A3 is software that helps you see things from your customer's point of view, so you can make things that are truly fast, powerful, and easy to use. By BlackBot, making the world a better place by providing technology solutions and support to nonprofit organizations around the world. By OptimalSort, with an elegant user interface, powerful analysis, and outstanding support, OptimalSort can help you run card sorts better than you ever thought possible. By PowerMapper, mapping your site has never been easier. PowerMapper extracts links from each page of your site until it's mapped your entire site, providing you with a complete inventory. By Axure, enabling information architects and user experience professionals to design efficiently, experience their designs, and clearly communicate them, ensuring more useful and usable application. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Jesse James Garrett provides an inside look at the process of creating Aurora, a concept video depicting one possible future user experience for the web. He talks about the technology trends that will shape the future web, outlines the challenges of designing a future product, and takes the audience for a behind-the-scenes look at the creation of the Aurora concept video. For the purposes of this particular audio podcast, I've edited out the audio from the Aurora video demos that Jesse showed at IDEA 2008. To see examples of each video, you can visit the show notes page for the conference on Boxes and Arrows, or simply point your browser to www.adaptivepath.com Aurora. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. My name is Jesse James Garrett. I am co-founder and president of a company called Adaptive Path. We do uh, experience strategy, experience design. We're based in San Francisco. Um, I'm also co-founder of the Information Architecture Institute, which is the organization that puts on this fine event every year. And uh, if you're not a member of the IA Institute, I am, encourage you to get involved. They're doing a lot of great things for the information architecture and user experience communities. And uh, you can find out more about them. They've got a table in the multi-purpose room and uh, on their website at iainstitute.org. That's the plug. Now on to the presentation. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about a project that I did this year. Uh, called Aurora, which was a really interesting challenge for me as a designer uh, to try to do a really different kind of design work uh, where we were uh, kind of looking into the future, uh, the future of technology and the future of user experience. So yeah, that's me. Um, I already told you all about me. Uh, this is a woman named Mitchell Baker. Mitchell is the uh, president of the Mozilla organization. And uh, I met Mitchell at a conference last year. and. Uh, we got to talking about the challenges that she and the Mozilla organization were facing. So they've got a product called Firefox. It's enormously popular. It's one of the most successful open source projects ever undertaken. Hundreds of millions of users all over the world. And she said the challenge for them now was because they had, up to this point, had been investing all of their energy in trying to get to the point where they had some kind of broad consumer acceptance for their product facing their competition from Microsoft. Now they were finally starting to get some traction on that, but they realized that what they didn't have was any kind of a long-term plan. They were completely trying to react to the marketplace in the near term, but they didn't really know where they were going with their product. Uh, this web browser, which had the potential to really drive all kinds of technological change. And so uh, we, were, we were talking about this, and, and I said, well, as a matter of fact, my company, Adaptive Path, we do this kind of planning for lots of different kinds of organizations. And it, we think it would be really cool 
for us to donate some of our time to the Mo Mozilla organization as a nonprofit and help you guys figure this out. What's the long-term direction for the web? What's the long-term direction for the web browser? How do these things fit together? So, uh, so we, we, we talked about it some more and they said, well, you know, we have a hard time working with commercial organizations because they tend to want to own all the intellectual property rights of the, of the projects that we do. And we said, no, we want to give it away. We want to just put all these ideas out there and see what happens. And they said, okay, great, let's do it. So we got together with uh, some of the folks from Mozilla Labs, which is the research and development function within the Mozilla organization. And uh, we started, started working out ideas for what we were going to produce. And we, and we, came, up, we came upon this idea of documenting the future of the web browser as this concept video. Now, the uh, concept videos have a long history in design as a way of illustrating possible future directions for technology, going back to the earliest one that I could think of was this Kitchen of the Future thing from 1956. Um, but some of the better known ones are uh, Apple's Knowledge Navigator video from 1987, which many of you pro have probably seen. And uh, the Starfire video, which is, is less well known, but I think was probably the biggest single influence on what we did with the videos that we created for Aurora. Um, and with all of these, uh, what you had was designers trying to really imagine what the future of their particular product category would be like if you took away the constraints that, they're, that they were dealing with in trying to get an actual product to market. And so they became these really interesting sort of intellectual exercises. The challenge for us was we'd really kind of underestimated the scale of the problem that we were taking on. Uh, because we thought, hey, you know, it's a web browser, it's a piece of software like any other piece of software. We worked on dozens of pieces of software uh, in the course of our careers. We, we certainly know how to tackle this one, but as we started thinking more and more about the web browser itself, it's got some really special kind of characteristics because of the way that it is kind of a conduit to the larger world and the range of different technologies that come into play when you, when you use a web browser. And we realized if we really wanted to understand the future direction of the, of the browser and portray it accurately, we needed to be thinking about where user interfaces as a whole were going. And in order to understand that, we really needed to understand what was going on with technology in the web itself. And then really, in order to understand that, we had to kind of paint this picture of the whole world of the future. Kind of a big challenge. And really different from any kind of design challenge that, we've, that we have undertaken in any of our consulting work because we were operating without constraints. Anything goes. Well, that sounds great until you try to figure out how, how to solve a problem. Our constraints are really valuable to us in the way that they help us shape the direction for a design. So we realized that we needed to start introducing some constraints of our own in creating this picture of the world of the future in which this web browser would have to reside. So we turn to this fellow. This is a, um, a guy named Jamey Cascio, and he is uh, a professional futurist. There are some people who actually get paid to do this. Uh, and he is hired by uh, uh, companies to come in and help them project out one or more possible futures for their market, their product category. And so uh, we uh, asked him to volunteer some of his time, and he came in and, and, and helped us out and led, uh, he brought in, so we had some folks from Adaptive Path, we had some folks from Mozilla, and he brought in some uh, expert people that he likes to call in on these these kind of uh, brainstorming sessions to help generate some ideas about 
where the future of web technology was going. And so we, we had a couple of days of these, these sessions where we, uh, people gave all of their, their personal perspectives on the trends that they were seeing and the kind of work that they were doing. And then uh, we kind of synthesized those into these larger trends. And ultimately, we came down to these three really big ones that we thought were going to be the things that would have the biggest impact on the web browser going forward. The first one is uh, a notion called augmented reality, which uh, was uh, perhaps best visualized in this screenshot from the movie Terminator 2. Uh, and what this is really about is kind of making this particular ability of the Terminators available to all of us. Uh, the idea of being able to access data about our environment and be able to analyze our environment and understand uh, the deeper sort of information structures that were going on all around us that were kind of latent in our environment. We've heard some references in a couple of the talks today to this, uh, to the potential to augment our understanding of reality with this flow of information about everything going on around us. Now, one of the challenges about that flow of, of information is the notion of having just way too much of it. I don't envy this guy. This is a, a, he's a hedge fund manager on Wall Street. There are actually several ways now that I don't envy this guy, but um, uh, this, is, this is his life when his life is going well. Uh, you know, one of the big complaints that you hear from people about technology over and over again is, oh my god, there's so much information, and how do I reduce the amount of information that's coming in? And we had a long conversation about this uh, during the forecasting workshops that Jamey led us through, and we realized that that's not going to change, actually. That we're not looking at less information in the future. If anything, we're looking at more information. And it, more information coming from lots of different sources. First of all, we're all producing more information than ever before. Hello, all you Twitterers in the front row. But aside from the information that we're, we're consciously, deliberately producing, there's the information that we're unconsciously producing, uh, that as our environments become more instrumented, that we have access to all of this data about what's going on in our lives that, uh, that we never had access to before. And it's just sort of constantly being generated. And, and all of that information has to be managed as well as we're leaving all of this, this data in our wake as we move through the world. So then the challenge becomes, once you take that abundance of data as a given, how do we manage that? And how do we uh, provide ways for people to meaningfully engage with all of the data in their lives? And the third big one was this notion of virtual identity. This is the um, avatar configurator from, uh, from Second Life. Um, but here, you know, we're not talking, just talking about virtual identity in this sense of creating an, uh, an image of yourself that's going to be uh, projected out into a, a 3D graphic dance club, but, um, but rather the notion that at this point, most people, certainly most people, uh, most younger people, are kind of expected to have some sort of a presence, a personal presence online, that there's, there are really kind of some fundamental ways in which if you can't be found on the net, you kind of don't exist. And that is something that is a fundamental change, not just to how we use technology, but how we engage with each other socially as well. And so we felt that, that looking at projecting this trend out and seeing how that was going to play out in web technology was going to be incredibly important. 
And speaking of technology, um, we really, again, wanted to kind of sidestep the question of exactly how all of this stuff was going to happen, because we really did want to try to imagine the design of these future products at, uh, to the greatest degree possible. But we did want to, to think a little bit about what were the trends in technology that would, that would influence what we would do. And uh, really what we, what we came back to was the, the idea of more, more, more and better. Um, more processing power, enabling uh, our computers to do more sophisticated things faster. Uh, more storage capacity, just being able, again, going back to that idea of data abundance, you have uh, more and more and more and more data uh, being produced, and you've got to have a way to store that, and the technology uh, to, to, to manage that storage has got to come along with it. More bandwidth to enable more sophisticated networked applications, enabling computers to connect with each other and leverage each other in new ways. Um, and this, one ended, this last one ended up being the one that probably influenced the direction of the design the most, the notion of advanced, more advanced graphics capabilities. Uh, that, uh, especially, you know, 3D graphics being something that was early on something that really you were, you were in a pretty limited set of professions if you even had a need for 3D graphics. Uh, and then it found its way into gaming, and now 3D graphics capabilities are pretty much a standard component of any computer that you buy. And uh, when you take that and uh, project that trend out another 10 years or so, you start to get some really interesting possibilities in terms of uh, what handheld devices can do and, uh, and what more powerful desktop devices can do. So with all of this stuff in mind, we designed this web browser of the future and we wanted to put it in, uh, in, 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 in a real context of use. And so we illustrated that through uh, a series of these four videos. And I'm gonna show you the first one now. Uh, and I hope the audio is gonna be loud enough for you. Here is part one. And after this, I'll talk more about the specific design choices that we made. Here's part one of Aurora. So in designing the Aurora browser, we really had kind of these four main themes that we kept coming back to. We had all of these ideas, tons and tons of these ideas for possible features and functionality that this thing could incorporate, and we, and we kept coming back to these as, as these big themes that we really wanted to hit in the design. The first one is this idea of context awareness, the idea that the browser knows how you're using it, and more, perhaps more importantly, knows how you have used it in the past. It pays attention to user behavior patterns, notices uh, the relationships between uh, where you are and what you're doing and what, and what resources on the web you're engaging with, and draws those connections and makes those connections visible in that, in that spatial view. Natural interaction, so uh, getting away from, the, there's so much abstraction in a traditional user interface, and trying to get away from that and turning things turning all of these abstractions into, as much as possible, stuff that feels like the real world. It feels like it has, uh, it has space, it has physics, it has uh, characteristics that really trying to rely on uh, those same cognitive mechanisms that we use to interact with objects in the real world. So if you want to get a closer look at something, you move toward it. And if you want to get something out of your way, you push it out of the way. And, and those kinds of things, to make it natural and instinctive in the way that we manage all, all of these different resources and the, and the different information on the web. Uh, the notion of continuity, uh, you know, if, if you think about when you use 
most applications these days, they tend to just sort of completely forget who you are and, and what you've done with them in the past. And really wanting to create that, that continuity, not just from session to session, but across devices. That the web is always the web, uh, regardless of how you're gaining access to it. And lastly, this notion of multi-user applications. Um, again, uh, one of these uh, uh, paradigms that we have kind of left over from, uh, from computing before networks uh, really became widespread is the idea that uh, any application is only being used by one person at a time. And building into the browser the infrastructure for people to, for more than one person to, uh, to collaborate in an activity. So here's, a, here, here's another look at the spatial view, which I, uh, is really kind of the central construct of the design. And you know, there are a couple of things about this that uh, I think are really interesting ideas. When you look at, at the, uh, when you think about the, the arrangement of, of the objects in this sort of XY space, left to right and top to bottom, we initially started out kind of thinking about the, the doing really, really sophisticated semantic analysis and being able to choose like the one canonical location for any given resource based on its semantic profile, right? That, that uh, certain kind of ideas would always appear in certain places in this XY space. But as we, as we got to thinking about that more, if the history of the web has taught us anything, it's that an idea like that, this really sort of rigid, rigorous, uh, mapping of semantics to physical placement is, is, is already kind of this outdated idea because what we've seen on the web is that approaches that sacrifice a bit of precision in return for greater responsiveness to human behavior and human psychology, those are the approaches that always win out. And so we decided to let it be messy, to let it be imperfect, but also to let it be mutable, to let it be something that could be shaped and manipulated by the user so that, uh, so that basically you get to decide where in the space you want to put a particular idea. And, you, and if you want to have ideas overlap or, or have ideas kind of pile up in one place, that's completely up to you. Uh, what the computer is going to do for you is it's going to uh, make choices about when new, when it, when it gets exposed to new resources, it's going to try to put those near things that are similar based on, based on what it knows about them. The other thing about the spatial view is the z-axis, this time dimension that it has. That was partly a, a, an, an attempt to manage this, this, the data abundance question, like do I really, really need to see these things that I haven't even looked at in six months or a year or longer? Um, and as we were, we were wrestling with different ways to visualize that time dimension, uh, there was something really kind of, it, it, it struck me as kind of poetic about the, uh, the notion that when you stop paying attention to people or ideas in your life, they just kind of drift away from you and, and you grow literally out of touch with them. Um, So we have the, the, the frame around the edges, and really the most interesting thing about that is, is, is the wheel here at the bottom, which is uh, not just a way to kind of switch from tab to tab or whatever, but it's a way of communicating your intent to the browser, communicating the, the context that you're operating in. 
And these are, these are kind of the things that you're maintaining an active connection to right now. So that when you switch back to that weather page, it knows you're in kind of a weather mindset. And all of the things that aren't related to that mindset all kind of go away. It's almost like if you, if, if you were uh, walking into a library, for example, like this one, if, if the library could read your mind as you walked in the door and knew what you were thinking about, that it could make all of the books in the library that aren't relevant to what you're thinking about, which is the majority of them, just make them disappear. Don't even show them to me. Don't move them around, because I want to be able to, to use my natural spatial sense to, to locate things, but just make them disappear. And so that was the idea behind the wheel and the spatial view. Some people, uh, when we first released the video, kind of commented, they were a little bit confused because it seemed like this was taking on a lot of the functionality of an operating system. And, then, and the question is, you know, is, this, is, it a, is it a browser or is it an operating system? And this was something that we kind of wrestled with for a while, and we decided that that was not actually a question that we were interested in taking a stand on. Uh, it's, uh, it's politically hazardous territory uh, in the tech industry. Um, but also, I think that it kind of doesn't matter because what you're talking about there is sort of evolutionary lineage rather than the endpoint that we were trying to describe. So in the weather service page, we see a, an example of this kind of multi-user interaction where you've got these pointers that have uh, people's little pictures attached to them. Uh, each of them is able to kind of grab data of their own and bring that data into the space and manipulate it and share it. And then here in the, with the mobile device, we see the, uh, the, the, the continuity of experience where uh, when she picks up the mobile device, she kind of logs in using her fingerprint and uh, it picks up literally exactly where she left off on the desktop. The, uh, the, you'll not that, notice that the, the frame and the wheel are a little bit different. Uh, they actually have the same exact objects in them, but, uh, but they've been scaled and adjusted to, to, uh, to accommodate a mobile interface. And we'll see some more of how the mobile interface works in the second part of the video. So here in the, in, in the design of the, of the mobile device, we uh, you know, faced a couple of interesting challenges, one of which was simply what were, what were we going to do to represent what mobile hardware would look like. Uh, and we actually settled on something very, very simple, which is this is, um, uh, this is basically a, a, a piece of plastic that's about the size and shape of a credit card. Um, and we, did absolutely, we didn't put any buttons on it or anything like that. Um, again, trying to take away from any, uh, anything that wasn't really, really focused on the browser. And that was one of the real difficulties that we had in, in developing these, these mobile scenarios that we were going to illustrate because uh, we actually came up with several different ideas that we ended up having to throw out because we realized that we were, we were telling a little story about a mobile device that happened to have a browser on it, not telling a story about how the browser would work in a mobile context. Uh, so again, uh, coming back to that design theme of continuity, the idea that, uh, that this uh, is a, a set of things that are, have been uh, part of this person's interaction with the web on other devices before, uh, before we see this interaction, but then we add that layer of context awareness to it, where uh, because the mobile device knows your location and it knows that uh, it, it's done the semantic analysis to know that, hey, you've been planning this trip to San Francisco for the last three months, and hey, now you are in San Francisco, maybe those are the resources that you're actually going to want. And then building on that, the idea of being able to uh, discreetly 
share location data with particular sites um, using a physical interaction, not sort of just checking a checkbox in, in, a, uh, in a preference screen somewhere that says, let everybody see my location, but giving the user more direct control, almost the idea that if I don't want you to contact me, I won't give you my business card, right? It's that physical, that physical transfer of the information uh, that becomes important. We see something similar actually in the, in the third segment. So this is where that, uh, that notion of augmented reality really kind of comes into play. Uh, the idea that uh, the slippers uh, actually have this kind of rich data set around them and that there's a, there's a very simple interaction that allows us to access that data set and kind of explore around within it. Um, and that this is actually just a normal part of how you shop for things in a store. Um, and this is, this, it's kind of an embodiment of that concept of spimes that we heard um, uh, talked about earlier today. Now the way that the user inter interacts with this data is through this concept of a workspace. So as we see websites become web applications and now we're seeing web applications starting to turn into web services where you have this fragmentation where you're not just dealing with one monolithic application but you're actually able to choose bits and pieces of different services and make those services work together for you, then the question becomes what, what, what's the ideal interaction with uh, an ecosystem like that? Uh, and that's where we came up with this notion of workspaces where you could just kind of pull these things together like Lego bricks and, uh, and they would have ways of sharing data among, amongst themselves and, uh, and be able to, uh, on the fly, kind of pull together whatever functionality you need to address uh, whatever the problem is that you're trying to solve. All right, I've got one last segment. So what we wanted to do uh, in, in showing the design in all these con kind of different contexts was to, to try to see if we could find essentially one solution, one way of interacting with the web that could be just as valid on a desktop as it would be uh, interacting with a, with a big wall screen. Um, and so it was this really interesting sort of iterative process as we, as we refined the design based on these contexts in which we wanted to show it. Um, we, throughout, we wanted to keep it, we wanted, to, we wanted it to be radical, right? I mean, we wanted to challenge some of the conventions that, uh, and the assumptions that we have from traditional software design but at the same time, we wanted it to be plausible. We wanted it to feel like something that could be real and feel like something that really did leverage the, uh, the existing trends that we're seeing uh, with user interfaces and with technology. And so uh, in the way that we structured the, this series of videos, we kind of progress from, the more, from more traditional interactions to the more radical ones, uh, starting out with the desktop and then moving to mobile and then finally moving to this completely gestural interface. Um, Another thing that you see in this last part is, is the way in which uh, the social nature of the web uh, really becomes part of the fabric of the web itself. Uh, that, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't log into Facebook to get in touch with uh, his sister. Uh, she's just right there. She's present in the browser. And, uh, and this, what we see, what, what we imagined is this uh, sort of these functions that are currently being reproduced on a small scale uh, on individual websites uh, kind of becoming built into the infrastructure of the web itself and becoming services that any website uh, can capitalize on. This is another uh, instance of this sort of multi-user nature of it. You, actually what you see throughout all of these scenarios is people using the web to connect with other people. 
because that's really the greatest value that, that we get from the web. So for Mozilla, uh, their goal with this was to inspire their developer community. Again, they've got thousands of contributors all over the world. And uh, getting them thinking about how they can do things differently uh, with uh, Firefox specifically as a web browser. And for us, we, we were really hoping to uh, generate some conversation about uh, the direction that, uh, that user interfaces are headed and uh, the influence that we as designers can have on that. And so uh, really from all of this, what we wanted was just to, just to provoke people. I mean, uh, whether, whether people agree with the choices that we've made or disagree with the choices that we've made, we still feel like we've accomplished our goal in getting that conversation going. So uh, in that spirit, I'd like to open it up to questions and thank you all for your attention. Did we start with personas and scenarios, or did we start with functionality? It's a difficult question because we kind of bounce back and forth between them. We, uh, the, so we had contributors from Mozilla as part of, as kind of advisors to us in the design process. And they, being a more, tech, more technical organization, were much more comfortable uh, talking about functionality than they were talking about uh, the human context, and so we would basically we had these weekly meetings with them where we'd spend an afternoon together and we'd talk about their ideas about functionality and where they thought uh, their product was going. And then we'd take that back uh, and then we would kind of try to put some human context around that and then bring that back to them and we would kind of bounce back and forth between the two that way. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. So the, so the question is, uh, you know, there, there's talk here, the video illustrates sharing information, it, it illustrates uh, consuming information, it doesn't really illustrate production, like uh, what Dave Gray was talking about this morning, that really important part of the process in, in which we all become uh, uh, contributors to the web. And this was, uh, this was a bit of a challenge for us in a couple of ways. We ended up uh, cutting about half of the material that we actually wrote for the video out of it. Um, and what we found was that uh, the stuff that ended up getting cut uh, were things where you were basically seeing the same interaction, basically, in a slightly different context, and, uh, and we felt like we weren't really getting maximum value out of that. Um, uh, additionally, there, there, is, uh, there are varying points of view within Mozilla about the role that the browser should play as a publishing tool, um, and uh, to be kind of respectful of those different points of view, we thought that it would be better to leave that aside. Personally, my, my perspective is I think, that, I think that publishing is absolutely integral to, and, and producing content and putting content on the web is absolutely integral to uh, how the browser is eventually going to operate. What, yeah, what's our time horizon? Um, we, started out, uh, we started out kind of aiming for 10 years. We didn't really feel comfortable projecting farther than 10 years. Um, and something nearer term than that we thought would be less useful as a, um, as a target. Um, and then as it evolved, you know, you look at some of this stuff and it's like, well, you know, some of it is going to come sooner than that. Uh, some of it is dependent on technological advances that might take more than 10 years to, uh, to come into being. So, but roughly 10 years is about what we were shooting for. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, so the, the question being about, um, about could it have been more adventurous in getting away from uh, the conventions of 
Windows icons uh, and mouse pointers. And I, I think, so there are a couple of things. So one thing that, that got cut from the video was a segment showing a voice interface interaction. And uh, again, it was a difficult kind of choice to make, but uh, frankly, watching a voice interaction with a computer on, in a video is really boring and not really, doesn't really illustrate anything. Um, and I think that showing, uh, showing an eye tracking kind of thing would be uh, a, a similar, um, similar kind of video viewing experience. We did kind of try to imply in places that, that there was more going on. So for example, in the first segment, um, the, the user that we see is not actually using a mouse. She's using uh, a, uh, a product that is currently being marketed as a uh, video game controller. But what it is, is a, um, it's a three-dimensional haptic simulator. So uh, the idea being that it can simulate textures and forces in a three-dimensional space. And, and that, the, kind of the presence of that is implying that there is this, there's, there's this other dimension of the experience that she's able to navigate the space by, by touch as well as uh, through the screen. And there were a lot of those kinds of things that, that we wanted to uh, explore further and we just had to, to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, well, I, so I'm trying to figure out how to, how to recap the question. Uh, the, the question is about, so we illustrate kind of going from desktop to mobile, um, where the things that you do with the desktop are manifested in the mobile experience, and then the question is, what are, how do the experiences that you have when you're out in the world feed back into, uh, uh, into the browser? Um, there were a couple of different ways that we, that we tried to address that. One was simply from a design perspective. What we didn't want the mobile browser to be was some sort of a uh, scaled down, stripped down version of the desktop experience. We wanted it to be as close to the desktop experience as we could get, uh, acknowledging the constraints of screen size and fingertip as your, uh, uh, as your mode of interaction. Uh, so all of the functionality that you see in the desktop and the wall screen is assumed to be present in the mobile device as well. Um, uh, the other thing is that, so that there's this question of, uh, and this question actually comes up a couple of times in the video of uh, what data do you want the browser to have access to? Uh, so we see somebody explicitly sharing location data with a website to say, hey, I want this website to know where I am so that it can provide this service to me. Um, and one of, the, one of the early mobile scenarios that, that, that we experimented with was the idea of having somebody kind of walking around and, and the device kind of notifying them about uh, about things in their environment that are particularly relevant to them, and that uh, that ultimately transformed into into the conversation that they have about the mapping site, where uh, again the assumption is that that they have explicitly shared some data with the mapping site to allow the mapping site to to make recommendations. Um, and I think that as these data sources become more readily available, the big challenge is going to be how do we make it so that people can uh, you know protect the privacy of their data in a in a responsible way, but still gain the benefits that you described. Um, what are some of the ways that, that we see site design changing to adapt to a model like this? Well, so what we did was, uh, so when we were designing the browser, we realized, well, wait a minute, now we've got to design all these web pages to go in the browser. Um, and so we took this as an opportunity to collaborate with some people um, that we had wanted to work with for a while. And we, we got a few outside designers to uh, contribute, contribute some of their time to come up with the New York Times of the future and the Yahoo upcoming of the future and, and so forth. And uh, those designs are really not very radical, are they? I mean, I, I think that as 
presentation technologies on the web become more sophisticated, web design starts to turn back toward graphic design in a really kind of fundamental way. And those become the driving um, principles of how you design for the web more than trying to work within the constraints of HTML and CSS or, or Flash and JavaScript. Right, so, so yeah, so the, the example is showing these websites seamlessly sharing data with, with, with each other. Anybody who's been involved in the technical end of this uh, cur currently knows that this is actually a really hard problem because uh, none of these sites speak the same language. They all have a different way of formatting their data and they all, all have different ways of interpreting what they, what they receive. And uh, yeah, absolutely, we uh, took it as, as an assumption that that problem will magically go away. <laughs> because what we really wanted to do was, if that problem did magically go away, how do we, uh, what would it look like? What would that world be like? And that was really the question that we were, that we were interested in tackling. Where, where, where? Ah, yes, thank you. Right, so how did, how did, we, how did we validate our design concepts? Uh, well, we were very fortunate in that no actual person had to use the product that we were designing. Um, so now, again, I mean, this is where this is an important difference between uh, doing a concept video and actually shipping a product. Uh, there is no way I would put this out in the world without extensive, rigorous user testing to make sure that it was actually working the way that we predicted. And I'm sure that there are a million things that I would do differently uh, based on that. Because the, the constraints were kind of off us to begin with, this is not something that, that Mozilla intends to turn into a shipping product. It's merely designed to be a kind of point of inspiration for their community. We felt like uh, we could rely on our own judgment and uh, if we had to uh, put, some, put some stuff out there that was not, again, strictly usable, uh, it would at the very least be something that would start a conversation about what would constitute a strictly usable solution to that particular problem. So. I thought I saw one more over here somewhere. Yeah. Right, so the question is, it looks like the browser and the operating system become one thing, essentially. Well, and so what we discovered in the course of doing this is that, is that especially if you think about um, the, uh, the increase in bandwidth uh, that becomes possible, that we were predicting uh, in the future, the distinction between a local resource and a remote resource kind of becomes irrelevant. You know, and, and you could very easily see these be being applications running off your hard drive uh, rather than web applications. And, and that's why we decided not to really draw a distinction and say this is all the browser, this is all an operating system. Okay, oh yeah, okay. Did our futurist friend talk about the operating system itself come, becoming obsolete? Not explicitly, no. I mean, again, I, I, it was something that, was, that inevitably came up in the conversation. Um, I think that what we're looking for, looking at is convergence of these different uh, technologies rather than obsolescence of anything in particular. So I, th I think that this could just as easily be a picture of an operating system as an, a picture of a browser. Well, uh, thank you all again. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Okay. Thank you.